All right, thanks again for coming this morning. Hang on tight today, right? All right, you may have had this said to you as, when you were a kid or something like this. Yeah, dad is taking the dog. Where's he taking him? Well, he's taking him to a, a farm in the country where he can chase squirrels and run free and he's going to love it. And we go, oh, that's so nice. That's wonderful. No, no, your dad took your dog and killed it. We just don't like to hear that, so we cope. We say, all right, let's find something that, that feels like it's, it's gone to a, a better place. But it tends to have been a coping mechanism. Some people say, that's pretty much what we've done by creating a place called heaven. A place that gives us some hope or gives us, you know, makes it easier to, to cope. And so we have all these pictures. When you picture heaven... Perhaps your picture is something like this, you know, like there's harps and clouds and angelic beings and, and, you know, it's just quiet and it's really boring. If that's how it is, and I agree with Mark Twain, who once said, you can have heaven, give me Bermuda. We've heard pictures then of hell, pictures of the devil and, and everybody's wearing red. Horns and pitchforks and, and fire and pictures like that. Torture and stuff. And as a result of some of those concepts and ideas, there's this, kind, there's this common perception about intelligent, educated American people whose culture has advanced and has a better way of thinking of things. And that is, when we talk about heaven and hell that most of the, most of what we've heard and the religions come up with is we kind of gets rejected. It's more of a more or less a fabrication. It's it's there to to cope or to or to help us endure. You know, no no one sang songs about heaven more than the American slaves when they were in slavery, and they would keep a whole lot of songs about the sweet by and by and crossing the River Jordan. It was all about a day that's going to come, and it was a whole lot of it was to cope with. What wasn't happening well here? And sometimes we've, it's been said that, well, we've created the idea of hell because we have this quest and, quest and thirst for, for justice to be done. And we want someplace where some people are going to get what they got. You know, it's, it's, they, they need to get their comeuppance. Do you know that the statistics show that in our country, the, the belief in a literal hell was in slow decline uh, from the beginning of our of our history, whenever stats were kind of done, and then when they were more formally done, and then the Pew Research Center kind of published some stats, and and the, the belief in the in that there's a literal hell declined and declined until about 1997. It was about 56 percent of Americans said they believed that there is a hell. It had gone down to that. Do you know that in the years after 9/11? the belief in hell spiked. So that by 2004, that percentage was back up to 71%. Why do you suppose that is? Is it perhaps because we've said somebody needs to pay? Somebody needs to get it. Somebody needs to come up and it's 71%. You know what's happened since then? Since 2004, it started declining again. And we're back down to about 59%, according to the research. People who believe that that's true. Now, we're talking about Hills worth dying on. Truths that we would say 
these are things that are foundational to the one who, the God who made us. He says, look, this is the way it is. This is what's true. Do not compromise this truth. And in a world that everybody, where everybody's got to be pluralistic and everybody's got to be tolerant and everybody's got to make everybody else feel okay so that we've abandoned or watered down perhaps some of these stuff. We have said, what are the hills that are really worth dying on? Now, there are plenty that aren't worth dying on. And you're sitting among a people who've got all kinds of variety in their backgrounds and their values and a whole lot of stuff that are different than yours. We could argue politics all day. But what are, what are the things that we, God would say, oh, don't, this is true. Never let this stop being true in your mind. One of those things we believe is that there is a real God with a real son who died on a real cross and paid for real sin and that you and I will spend eternity somewhere because we are eternal beings. We'll see that in a minute. And as a result, we're going to spend our, we have a destiny and that destiny will be one of two places. It will be either the presence of God in heaven or it will be a place apart from God called hell. We believe that that is a truth, and while it might be an uncomfortable truth, it is a truth, and it's got good reason for being truth. Now, I'm going to invite you to the Bible, and we're going to, I'm going to show you a bunch of passages. You can flip around with me if you like, or if you want to just stick a finger somewhere or find, find it on your device, go to the book. Let's go to the very end, the book of Revelation, and maybe just, just find Revelation 20. I'm going to show you Revelation 20. We'll end there and also with Second Peter, which is not far from there. But I'm going to show you some other passages here as we get started on that. And we're going to see that, that, first of all, Jesus was absolutely, there's no reason to think that he was absolutely convinced. He talked about heaven and hell pretty consistently without any question about his belief in them. Over 120 times in the gospel, some say over 180 makes reference to heaven. And Jesus, while he doesn't talk about hell a lot, he talks about hell more than any other New Testament writer or, or character. He references it casually in that he says it exists. It's there. And so these, these words are at the end of John 3 where uh, Jesus is talking about how you need to be regenerated. You have to have a, a spiritual birth in order to get to heaven. And it says this, the father loves the son, has placed everything in his hands. And this is very simple. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. We'll come back and talk about it. Be remaining on him in a little bit. Now let's back up for a minute and just get some perspective before we talk about the actual places of heaven and hell. Here's, here's, some tr- here's the truth about us. And this is a little bit of review if you were here a couple weeks ago. That is that you are a unique creature in all of the universe. You more than angels, you more than animals, you more than the starry host. You, you you are walking around as this unbelievable hybrid creation that God says, "Watch! you want to see the best thing I've ever done? Oh, this was a good one. It was when he took, he, what he did was he merged two dimensions in one place. You're walking around merged in two dimensions. You are a physical, material being, like the stuff around you, and you are also a spiritual, spirit-carrying being, like the angels, but you carry both together in one package you are all that just know that you're you're something else the capstone of creation humans are called and because of that you have the wonder of something where god breathed into the first of us what is called the breath of life it was different than the breath that your dog or cat breathes it is 
there is something different about your life. It is actually an image-bearing part of you that comes from the Creator. He imbued us with parts of who He is. Among those significantly are, He gave you the power of choosing like He does. Not just having instincts. And that life that you're carrying around with, within you is a spiritual, eternal life. It will, because it comes from His breath, his life will not end. You have, you're carrying that life around with you. That's really, really significant. So you're, you're this dual-dimensional inhabitant. And you're simultaneously existing in both those. Originally, God created a place that was the optimal habitat for those beings. We know it as Eden. It was part of the creation of the heavens and the earth. It was placed here, and it was completely optimally conditioned for us to, ex- to, to for this being to, to flourish in. Now, I'm going to go really fast through this, but you, you're aware of this. Sin that we talked that Rick talked about last week. Sin ruptured that whole thing. It injected a poison to it. It destroyed it. What we inhabit now is nothing. It is not remotely like what it was intended to be. It is not a perfect habitat for you. Now, this is, here, here's what God says. So, Genesis 2, Lord God commanded the man, you're to eat of the, of, from the, only the tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. There's a warning there. He says, because you, uh, you, my, you bear my image, you have the power of choice. But if you choose to separate yourself from my, from my provision and leadership, you're separating yourself from the spiritual source for you, and that is death. The, the word death has always meant separation. When you hear death, it is a separation of a body from a spirit. That is a physical death. A spiritual death is a separation too. It's a separation of that soul you carry around from the source of life of that soul, God himself. That's what he's talking about. When he says you will begin the process of dying when it happens. You know that that's what's happened, what has happened. And in Romans chapter 5, we see it. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin, in this way, death, great, thanks, Adam. Every one of us gets is all the same boat. We're all born with this problem. We're marred, separated, broken, lost. We're dead spiritually, separated relationally from the God who gave us that life. Ephesians 2 talks about that death. You, as for you, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And look at this last phrase. I mean, this is not, this is not good news. Without hope. I mean, without hope and without God in the world. So that is the condition we, we find ourselves in. There's that separation. What that means is you, think about this, you have never lived in the habitat where you belong. You've never experienced it. What you're seeing is the charred remains of a broken, fried world. It doesn't look anything like what it was supposed to look like, what was made for this hybrid to fully function. Oh, you see remnants of it, and there's parts that we can enjoy. But this is nothing compared to what it was created to be. I don't think we can begin to understand what Eden was like. So you've never been home. And the Bible refers to us. It says, it calls on us. Make sure you understand you're living like aliens and strangers in, this, in the cosmos right now. 
That's what 1 Peter 2 says. I urge you, uh, uh, friends, as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from the sinful desires which war against you. It's, there's, don't try to make this home. Can I just say this? There's a whole lot of us in the room who are working really, really hard to just try to feel at home around here. Try to arrange our household and our possessions and our income and our relationships so that we can go, if I can just get it so I feel content, like this is where I belong. You know what? It's never going to happen fully. Oh, you might feel a little bit of comfort and then discomfort, but you cannot feel at home in this realm because it isn't in the form that's a bit habitable to you, not the original design for it. So the Bible talks about longing for home. And look at this passage in Hebrews 11 where it's, this is the hall of fame of faith, people living for God and living by faith. And it says all these people were still living by faith when they died, physically died, and they admitted, they recognized something, they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for, look at this, they're looking for a country of their own. Not, not to try to make a kingdom on earth for themselves or something work. They're looking for a different. Instead, it says, goes on to say, They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Okay, now it's referencing something. A heavenly country. When you feel unsettled where you are, it's because you were created for something far more than what you get to do all the time. If you you came into possession of a Formula One racing car, and you go, ever since I was a kid, I played with these, I just... Can you imagine actually owning a Formula? Maybe some of you do. You know, you put it in the garage, you got a Formula One racing car, and you would find yourself going, okay, all right, now what am I supposed to do with it? Well, well, we're down on milk. All right, I'll go get some milk. You get in that thing, you rev that thing up, and you drive a mile and a half to get milk. How's that feel? You, my, my wife, you know, I've got a sports car. My wife says, oh, you don't deserve this car. You don't deserve this car. Why not? Because you're too cautious. You're just, she goes, this car is made to break the rules. Why don't you ever break the rules? The car. Well, if you got the Formula One car, you can get milk. Oh, it'll work. It'll function. I mean, yeah, you can go get the milk. But you're never going to understand what that car was really made to do. You can't because it's not in its habitat that it was designed for yet. That's you. C.S. Lewis, the, the writer and philosopher, said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. One that was lost, paradise lost, Milton called it. And full, here's here's the cool thing, full restoration of our habitat, what we were created for, it has been the driving passion and goal of our creator ever since. Ever since man fell, God has said, I'm going to try to rectify this. I'm going to find a way to make this happen, to pull this back together. And he's got to do it. Now, get this, because he created you to be an image bearer, which means you've got freedom of choice. He will do it in such a way that he honors your choices. But at the same time, he'll provide a cure for the death separation. And then he'll re- he, his plan is to remake an unruined habitat for those creatures to function in. So a quick definition of terms here. Hang with me before we start talking about the the guts of heaven and hell. When we talk about heaven, heaven is actually, the Bible, heaven is the realm where God is. 
where, where in human terms, he puts this, where God resides. Now, he's everywhere, but where he says, this is his presence. That is what, wherever that is, that is heaven. It's kind of like our, our air traffic controller system understands that the call name for the plane that the President of the United States is riding in is, you know what it is, it's Air Force One, right? It's considered, he's a commander-in-chief, so it's considered a military uh, pr- uh, operation regardless of what the plane is. What, whatever airplane our president finds himself in, ha- the call letters shift, and it be- that becomes Air Force One. So he could change planes all the time, but whatever he's in, it's Air Force One. Heaven is wherever God is by his presence. So sometimes, uh, it, and, it, and by the way, it's a, it's a pure and it's a spiritual dimension because God is a spirit. Where, that's where he resides. So, Sometimes it's been distinguished and called the third heaven. You ever heard that phrase? The Bible uses it. First heaven is the atmosphere over our planet. The second heaven is the starry host in the, in the universe. And then the third heaven is the spiritual dimension where God exists. This is Paul the Apostle got a chance to look at it. This is what he says. I know a man in Christ. He's talking about himself who 14 years ago was caught up. See where he went? To the third heaven. And he's even trying to figure out because he's a physical being, right? But it's a spiritual place. And he says... Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I'm going to say it again. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up, and he calls it to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Think about that last phrase. Hang on to that for later. Now, our at, at the same time, there, that, that heaven is this, it's distinguished from the earthly realm, the material world. It's also distinguished from Sheol, which is the realm of death, which we'll talk about later. So our, high, our habitat, our hybrid place where we're supposed to function, well, it, it was Eden, which none of us have seen pictures of or can't even imagine. Pre-sin, because what happened was it was a merger. The presence of God was there and the material perfection that he, that he put together in creation was there, and that became our natural habitat. This is, where, this is why we, you and I have a little bit of an issue. Our, our hybridness, it requires that, that we have both dimensions represented in order to fully function the way we were designed. So it's going to require, get this, a new earth someday. Tuck that away. That new earth is actually under construction right now. And you're going to see it in Revelation 21, but not yet. That is why, just to throw this in extra, a little theology for you. No no extra charge for this. That is why it is essential that a future resurrection of bodies happens. Because you know people whose bodies are no longer attached to their souls. You've visited them in cemeteries and you've lost some this year. That separation has happened. But God says, no, that, so we're not fully ourselves until they're recombined. And so a resurrection is going to reunite the physical material body in a form that is pure, that we don't understand, and our spirits. That will be our eternal condition. You know that Jesus Christ is now in that same form. God, the second person of God, God in the Son, is actually came to earth it's what's so amazing about Christmas that he did it to himself. He made himself in that image, that form, while still be full, being fully God. 
So 1 Corinthians 15, if you ever want to, it's, I think we got, uh, you can look it up in the program. There's a lot of verses you can look at. It's, Paul says, you've got to know you cannot give up on the resurrection. If, if there is no resurrection, we're, we're, it's over. That's why it's so important. We're incomplete, and yet we can still be present with the Lord, and that be called heaven, right? Because that's the presence of God. So, let's talk about heaven. First, you know, let's talk about hell. Let's start with the bad news. Can we talk about hell first? You ready for this? Here's the truth about hell, a little brief history lesson. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was created for a purpose. It was created for the devil and his angels. It's a cell and a prison created for them. It's a spiritual dimension, just like heaven. It's a spiritual dimension. And what it represents is it is existence apart from God. Spiritual death is there. Now, we got a whole lot of pictures about heaven that came out of the 14th century when a guy, there's a movie coming out next week, two weeks, called Inferno, Dante's Inferno. It's about Dante, who's a 14th century poet who wrote this thing about the nine circles of hell and all the sins are involved in it. And a whole lot of our pictures of what we see, the pictures of hell, actually came out of that poem, not necessarily out of the Bible. The Bible, so, so we might need to unlearn a little bit about hell, but don't, make no mistake, you're not going to like any hell any better. But the picture there is it is an existence separated from God. And here is, so all the benefits that come with God's presence are forfeited when somebody says, I don't have God around me. So what is true of God? Here's some of the things that are true of true God. God is light. In fact, it says that, 1 John chapter 1. In him there's no darkness at all. So separation from God means darkness. And so that is one of the words that gets used. Utter darkness. Utter darkness. No source of light. This is Matthew 8, 12. The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've heard stories about how quickly you lose your mind if you're in utter darkness. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard people get, if you've ever gone spelunking in caves and there's complete darkness around you, it can kind of freak you out. This hell is known, is, is marked by the absence of God's benefits and God is light. God is also love. 1 John 4, 8 says that. And what that means is the benefits of love, relationship, and sacrifice, and, and uh, community is lost. So that means the absence of God's love, love in, at, if God is love, is aloneness and separation. Psalm 73, this is a weird, I mean, this is, this is a haunting verse that talks about God's perspective on what it's like for those who are going to be separated from him. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Now, this is talking about a God. As a dream when one awakens, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You know what that says? Existence apart from God for eternity will be like, almost like God forgets. It'll be like, that was a weird dream. Now, that should raise some questions for you. We can talk about it in cell group. But it is, the, it is a separation from God's uh, love. And then there's also a, a separation from, from God's comfort. And so there's, ang- so, so the, there's words like anguish and punishment and, and mainly unsatisfied longing. The words that the Bible, I won't take you to all of them, the words the Bible most often uses to de- try to give description to this 
environment, the spiritual environment, it uses the word flame. I don't know whether it's a literal flame. Can you, I, can you, I've studied about whether you can feel flame in complete darkness, all that kind of thing. Torment, weeping, outside, darkness, where the worm does not die. It, that by the New Testament, they use the word Gehenna, which has always made me wonder how the people on the other side of the city ever got decided to call themselves by a word that's remotely close to this. Because Gehenna was this place outside the south side of the walls of, of the city of Jerusalem, and it was basically a, a dump. It was a fire dump. It was also places where, uh, in years past, people had sacrificed their children to other gods. And it was always, it was always burning. It was, like they just, it was an incinerator, an open pit incinerator, and they would just dump stuff in there. Sometimes bodies would get thrown in there. And so that became representative of the picture of being outside and separated and, and without hope. And here's, here's the reality. This, here's what I want you to hear especially today about hell. Before you start accusing God of being unkind and un, un, uncaring and how could he possibly send people there, here's the phrase I want you to hear. Everyone who goes to hell gets exactly what they asked for. Because we are living in rebellion saying we can live our lives independently, thank you. We can acknowledge God, we can say he's there, we can even say we believe in him, but we don't want him telling us what to do. We don't want him dictating our lives. We are freedom fighters. We want to be free. We don't have, we cast off any authority. In fact, Satan has, that's how he's been trying to deceive people for years, saying he did it in the Garden of Eden. Oh, so God said you can't do it? Oh, really? Somebody else is going to tell you how to live? You're not free? Aren't you free? We have been buying that, and, and it is in our nature now to say we are not going to let anybody, including God, tell us what to do. We can live life independently from God. We have no idea what we're really saying when we say it. But we are getting, in hell, exactly what we asked for. God is honoring our choice. Now, we may say, well, I'm not asking for torment. No, but I'm asking to be... I'm living my life choosing not to be connected with the source of life for me. Not, not, I'm not bowing to him. So, so it, it, this is life or existence independent from God's interference or his control or his presence, which also means his benefits. He honors the image bearer's right to choose. G.K. Chesterton, who is an author and scholar, said it this way, hell is the greatest compliment God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. He said, I will let you choose. I will not force you to believe something or to go a certain way. Now, here's what, here's, are you, you got a space in, in Revelation, right? Okay, take a look at Revelation 20, verse 13. We're almost done with the bad stuff. Here's something else you need to understand. When people talk about going to hell for eternity, that's not technically true. Hell is a, is a holding cell designed to be a place that holds until the final resurrection where everybody will be resurrected and then they will be, find themselves in the, in the destiny that they chose. And this is what happens at the, at the end when the resurrection happens. This is Revelation 20, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, the words that get used for hell, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and hell, or Hades, look what happens. They were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Remember, death is separation. There's a spiritual separation, like the final one. 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is not the final resting place. It's the holding prison that eventually gets thrown into the lake of fire. Well, that's no better. Okay, I need to tell a joke right now, you know, like, let's lighten up the mood a little bit. But Jesus was clear. There's a spiritual existence for people where they are right now. I know people, I don't say this flippantly, I know people who, as far as I know, best of my knowledge, that's where they are right now. I have family members who I think that's where they are right now. I don't want to say that. I don't like that. But God honors our choices. And there's a choice that they did made and there are choices that they, that they didn't make. Hell is not just a place for the really bad people who did these handful of lists that we decide, well, those are things that really uh, deserve it. Hell is the default destination of human, human beings who remain dead, separated from God. That's what John 3 says. Whoever believes, this is what we saw earlier, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath, which is the, the justice done on that life, it remains on him. Isn't, isn't placed on him then. It, it has already been placed on him by his own choices. It remains on him. It's, it remains unchanged. And so that's the truth. But here's what you need to understand. Never been what God wanted. God is not looking to send people there. God is not wanting to take his, his pound of flesh out of people. I mean, Second Peter, we'll come back to this. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so that's going to lead us to the alternative. And here's the truth about heaven. And we can't do justice to this today. Understand, we need to study this, look at it. Here's, again, a brief history. There was a place, before Jesus rose from the grave, there was a place that was called Sheol in the Hebrew. It means, it means the realm of death. Actually, those who departed, who were, into, who were apart from God, were separated, but somehow maybe Luke 16 says, could see those who were in what was called paradise. It was not the third heaven. So technically, you could say, when people died before Christ rose from the dead, they, they died, they didn't go to heaven, they went to paradise in Sheol. Jesus tells a story about a rich man and Lazarus and how they die. Now, some would say this is a parable and it's figurative language, but he still is referencing something that is true before that. It is completely understood in the Old Testament when it says, I descend into death, it's Sheol, I go to the realm. It's, oh, it's, it's a paradisical place for those who, are, who know him, but it's not the third heaven. Uh, let me just show you part of it. This is from Luke 16. The time came when the beggar died. Angels carried him to Abraham's side. This is in Sheol in paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things when Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
The Bible actually says that when Jesus died for those three days, when his spirit, remember his spirit didn't stop existing, his spirit went to this realm, to Sheol. And he preached what he had done, he had proclaimed. And then 1 Corinthians talks about when he rose, he took captive a host of captives, which implies that he relocated paradise. And Jesus talked about that with his disciples. He says, where I'm, I'm going, you can't come with me, but I'm going to take those who, are, who, who trust in me. I will raise them up. And so he, he relocates paradise to the third heaven, the presence of God, which is called paradise spiritually. It's a spiritual dimension where that's where their spirits are. Are you hanging with me so far? Now, so currently, it's a spiritual realm. It's pure and it's conscious and it's paradise. And when the Bible tries to describe it, it's hilarious because a handful of people were given visions of it. Ezekiel is one of them. If you look at Ezekiel 1, he says, okay, I saw this vision, and he says, it was kind of like the form of kind of like this color with some stones and kind of like, and he's like throwing words. He, he keeps using words. It's sort of kind of like this because he has nothing to compare it to. In, when Paul, the apostle, it was referenced 14 years before he wrote it, he had gone there, and look what he says. You saw this part. He heard, he's talking about himself. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. What in the world did the dude see? It's like, I, I can't even put it into words. And he says, so it, but it was going to make him conceited. So in, or, his whole thorn in the flesh was given him, it says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. When the Bible says, he says this in 1 Corinthians, Paul, he says, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has seen it yet. Do you know that among scientists who oftentimes are agnostic or atheist because they're studying the mechanics of the, of the physical universe, they're measuring things and they fi- figure out, among scientists, physicists tend to have the higher degree of being deists, believing that there is a God. And the reason they give that physicists tend to be more of that is because physicists tend to understand that the human eye sees, sees a certain band of, of uh, light waves. But they understand that there's other light waves, infrared, you know, that kind of thing that we can't see. That, that, that what we're seeing is a very narrow. Our equipment only sees a certain level of the signals that are out there. And so physicists kind of say, oh, they're more prone to say, oh, there could easily be other dimensions. We just don't have the equipment to measure it or see it. We're very limited. They're on to something. Because we were created not with the limitations we've got now. We, we were created to see a whole, have a whole spectrum of things probably that we could see or feel or do. And when this unit that God created is, is unleashed to its fullest capacity, he says, I can't even begin to tell you what you will see, what you'll experience. But man, it is so much better than what you're limited to see now. It's paradise, the best they can come up with to talk about it. It is a, it is a spiritual realm, but it's not going to be entirely spiritual forever because God is working on the reunion. One of the best books on heaven that, that you could read is a book called, uh, it's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. There's a lot of speculation in it, but I would encourage you to read it because it's speculation based on the study of scripture. And I just want to read you one, one of the things, just one of the, Small things he says, but let me just... So he's talking about now what's, what's going to happen in Revelation 21 where God is going to do the resurrection of our bodies and he's going to introduce the new earth 
He's going to wed these two things together. And that'll be our permanent final habitat. That'll be the place where we say that's what we were made for. He's, so, so he's talking about how we're going to be physical and spiritual beings at the same time. It's not just a ethereal place. Here, here's what he says. We'll stand on the new earth and see it, feel it, smell it, taste its fruits, hear its sounds. Not figuratively, literally. We know this because we're promised resurrection bodies like Christ. He saw and heard and felt. He was, and as he cooked and ate fish, he presumably smelled and tasted it too. We will too. Heaven's delights will stretch our glorified senses to the limits. How will things look? How far away will we be able to see them? Will our eyes be able to function alternately as telescopes and microscopes? Will our ears serve as sound-gathering discs? Will our sense of smell be far more acute, able to identify a favorite flower or person miles away so we can follow the scent of the source? Will our eyes be able to see new colors? We currently can't see ultraviolet and infrared, but we know they're real. Doesn't it seem likely that our resurrected eyes will see them? What did Adam and Eve see that we can't? Although we don't know the answers to these questions, it seems reasonable to suggest all our resurrected senses will function at levels we've never known. And, we'll, and, and then he says, what will our resurrected taste buds be able to taste? The best food here on earth is tainted by the curse. Our taste buds are still defective. Think of the best meal you've ever eaten, the best dessert you've ever tasted. Good as those were, they were just a hint of what's to come. A good enough hint to make us long for heaven. To re-restore to the sensory abilities of Adam and Eve would be thrilling enough, but it seems likely that our resurrected bodies will surpass theirs. What God remakes, he only improves. God could add new senses to our old ones. He's going to get weird here. Hang on. What do I mean? I don't know. How could I explain the sense I've never experienced? If we'd never known sight, how could we sense that what we were missing? If you've never been able to smell lilacs or taste blueberry pie or hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, how could you grasp what it means to smell or taste or hear such things? On the new earth, I think we'll continually be discovering to our delight what we never knew existed, what we've been missing all our lives. No joy is, the greater, is greater than the joy of discovery. The God who always surpasses our expectations will forever give us more of himself and his creation to discover. Now that's what I'm talking about. No eye seen, no ear has heard what that's, what that's going to be like. And eventually, all right, you in Revelation? Look at Revelation 21. God is going to then do a remerge. Now, the, we will be with him in a paradise spiritual state. But in the, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the, the souls under the throne calling out for God, wondering, when is his resurrection coming? Can you bring it on? Let's, let's do this thing. And then it happens. In Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. God is redoing. He's do, he's, all the stuff that happens in Revelation is just to get the canvas clear to reintroduce this thing that he's making, to remake it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. It was prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now look at this, because remember where heaven is? Heaven is where God is. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And you probably might have heard this verse before. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write it down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Eventually, this remade merge of the physical and spiritual will be brought 
together. It's being prepared right now by Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He said, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. I don't know what that looks like, but understand this. It's not just spiritual cloudy stuff. It's real. It is absolutely as real as where you sit and what you're touching and what you see. It is just that without the shackles of a fallen, burnt out world sin on it. The third heaven descends. It's tangible. There's eating and there's activity and these bodies can do stuff. You'll be able to recognize each other. It'll be you, but it'll be so much better you than you are right now. You know how you look at a baby picture? And then you look at the adult and you go, oh, I can see, I can see you in that. You know, you got that nose thing going on and those weird shaped head. It's still there. You know, that kind of stuff. You can kind of tell what they, that it was them by looking at both. But you know what you can't do? You can't look at a baby picture right now and say, I know exactly what you're going to look like. Oh, there's a few that look kind of like old men right now, but you know what I mean. You can't look at a baby picture now and say, I know what it's going to look like. It's the same thing. All we have now is the baby picture of each other. We don't know what these forms will will be like when all the imperfections of sin and genetics are removed from them. But here's what we do know. When that happens, it's going to be home. Real home perfectly synchronized and matched to your abilities and your capacities, perfectly designed for an eternity worth of discovery and joy, perfect in all its ways. It is not just pie in the sky. It's not just sweet by and by. It's what we were made for. And again, it's why the souls are asking, God, can we do this? Can we get on with this? In order for that to happen, Some things have to take place. It goes without saying. There's something dead that needs to be brought to life, your soul. There's something that's broken that needs to be restored. There's something guilty that needs to be paid for. When God talks about this, when God talks about heaven and hell, he doesn't talk about it to threaten you. He doesn't talk about it to try to frighten you. He's not trying to scare you straight. He's not, try, he's not trying to tell you he's waiting to get you. He's, he doesn't take some sick pleasure in people not having it. He does it to give us focus and hope. Colossians 3 says, since then, whoops, go back, here we go. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Okay, since that's going to happen, that resurrection, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, your broken part died, And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Can I show you one other passage? Just a few pages back from Revelation. It's in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3. Here's why God tells us this. Here's why it's a hill we absolutely have to retain. It is worth dying on because it's true. Because God tells us this to compel us. To give us hope, to help us focus. And look look what else he does. I'm going to start with verse 9. The Lord's not slow about keeping his promise. Some understand slowness. People say, why isn't this happening if it's going to happen? He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
Heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. There's a new one coming. And so he, so he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought us we to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to a day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire. Elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven. There it is. And a new earth, the home, the home of the righteous. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with, with him. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience, it means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Part of the reason God gives us is to compel us and to give us time. I'm waiting. I want you to experience the life I intended for you. I'll honor your choices. I'll honor if you don't invite me to pay for your sin. I'll honor, I'll honor if you want to live independently from me. You won't like it, but I'll honor it. But I want to be patient with you. I want to give you. I'm, I'm seeking you. I'm grateful that God gave me the chance. He waited long enough for me to have the chance to say, I'm ready. I need you. And if you haven't crossed that line of faith, you can be grateful, but now is the day. Now is the time to say to him, I was made for a better life. I'm going to trust you for it. I want to be with you. I want heaven in my future. Would you bow with me in front of him and let's talk to him about that.